Welcome to the Demystifying Diversity Podcast, where each week we explore topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm Dara Lise Lyons. In this episode, we're talking about how the model minority myth has contributed to the virus of hate afflicting Asians in America. The besetting sin or evil of racism is precisely that. The refusal to acknowledge that all humanity is equal, is the same to begin with. You construct this idea that certain other peoples are fundamentally inferior, or at least very, very different. Between March and June 2020, 2,100 separate incidents of anti-Asian aggression were reported in the United States alone. 2,100 hate incidents within the span of several months perpetrated against everyday people going about their lives or trying to in the midst of a global pandemic. In Brooklyn, New York, an 89-year-old woman was slapped, then set on fire. In the San Fernando Valley in California, A 16-year-old boy was attacked in school and taken to the emergency room. In Texas, a 19-year-old Sam's Club employee stabbed three members of a family of four while they were out shopping. The stabbing victims included two children, ages two and six. The teenage perpetrator, Jose Gomez, told authorities he'd attempted to kill them because he thought they were infecting people with COVID-19. The physical violence being perpetrated against Asians in America has been fueled by the verbal vilification of this racial minority. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo called the coronavirus the Wuhan virus, a reference to Wuhan, China, and President Trump repeatedly referred to COVID-19 by offensive and aggressive epithets, such as Kung Flu and the Chinese virus. It's not surprising that with national leadership spouting racist and xenophobic remarks, others have felt emboldened to express their bigotry against Asians in America. Nikki, who chose to keep her last name anonymous, emigrated from China to the United States after marrying her husband, Ben. In China, she worked as a translator, facilitating communication for American tourists. Now, she works as a cashier at Whole Foods. Nikki spoke to me about her experiences. The other voice you'll hear is Ben's. Because I working in Whole Foods, I got all kinds of customers. You have to face all kinds of people every day. And then most of the people, 90% customer, they are very nice, very high quality. They appreciate your work. But it just some once a while, some people really messy. It's not just from white people, even had races from bad black people. Uh, my first racist scene is, is a black guy. He's tall and maybe mid-age. And then he was joking a lot with the couple in front of him. As soon as he saw me and he checked out for me, he gave me very mean face and very rude for me. I was so surprised. I didn't feel upset for that, but I was so surprised. How can black people racist for me? White people has racist issue and not for black people has a racist issue for Asian too. 
I was so surprised via via same uh, minority. Minorities. Yeah, minority. Sadly, racial minorities are not immune to discrimination against one another. In fact, racism thrives on keeping minority groups separate. Here's Dave Q, Senior Community Programs Manager for the Asian Arts Initiative. Specifically between Asian and Black communities, there's the model minority myth that keeps us apart. Um, that even, you know, many first-generation Asian immigrants have adopted this idea that, like, oh, if we, if we behave well and if we participate, we can get uh, a little further in these white systems. Uh, which other communities look at and say, like, you know, why, why are, why are Asian communities being lifted up? Uh, it is a way of participating in white supremacy and just trying to get uh, a little bit of the pie, right? But I think we, we need to reject that <laughs> because the model minority myth uh, oppresses us as well as it creates divisions between communities that aren't necessarily there. Uh, so we need to overcome that. I'll return to the importance of solidarity among communities of color later. For now, I want to talk about the discrimination that has intensified since the onset of this global pandemic. Although Nikki experienced incidents of racism and xenophobia prior to COVID-19, it's gotten markedly worse. Later, uh, especially after the coronavirus breakout, I, I got a lot. It's coming again and again. Even my, yeah. my co-worker, she's from, she's from Thai, Thailand. She told me that I didn't try believe that. I said, oh, maybe I'm nice, I smile bigger, maybe they will like me, they won't do any terrible, uh, stupid thing for me. I, I didn't trust that at the beginning. And later, a lady come to me, he, she hand over the food for me, and then I, I will try to get it and then try to uh, uh, ring it. She said, don't touch my food. I was shocked about that. I said, what? I'm a cashier, I touch your food, it's, it's very nature things. She said, don't touch my food. Oh, at that moment, I was so, I really want to say F word for her. I really want to learn her, say, what, 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 what's wrong with you? I, I hold my fire because I don't want to lose my job. I, and then, and then I just walk away, ask my supervisor to deal with that. And after even I leave, I go to wash my hand, I try to calm down, but it still come to me. I say, why you do that for me? I, I didn't do anything for you. I am not a virus. The 2,100 reported anti-Asian incidents are an underrepresentation. I know because none of the people we spoke with reported the instances of discrimination they've experienced. Anna Marie interviewed Dr. Han Bowie Keating, a board-certified diplomat of the American Board of Periodontology, a diplomat of the International Congress of Oral Implantologists, a fellow of the Meisch Institute in both surgical and prosthetic modules, and a member of the Institute for Advanced Laser Dentistry. Dr. Keating related two distinct experiences that impacted people in her life, including herself. So one of my colleagues, she she's an oral surgeon in Santa City, and she was at the um, checkout line at Target, and she was social distancing. Um, at that time, people were not wearing masks. So, but she, you know, everyone was standing far away from each other, and there was a an elderly gentleman um, who could be like in his seventies, you know, even who marched 
from the back of the line up to her and come right up to her face and say, you know, you make us like things along the line of you go back to where you're from. You're bringing, you're the ones bringing the germs to this country. You know, you're the one that put us in this mess. And um, very insulting words, you know, right at the checkout line. The fact that he came right up to her, you know, and invading her personal space, you know, in in why COVID was going on um, was already uncomfortable. Um, But she was just so shocked that she she didn't even have a response, you know, because, again, in our culture, we respect the elders. You know, and for the elders to be saying things like that, we just yeah, that's horrible. have that kind of shock right away. And then she eventually had to ask him to, like, back out of her space, you know. Yeah. And then, you know, the, um, you know, the target employee actually called the manager over and asked him to, like, back off, you know. But it was really, of course, upsetting for her. And the second instance? This was about March, like um, beginning of March. I was in, you know, I was picking up my mom at the Key West airport. We arrived before she did. And um, I was, you know, while we we were waiting, I was just chatting with two other ladies, um, you know, about whether the flight arrived, where will we get our luggage? You know, there are only two carousels. So we're like, which one is it? Um, And it was very crowded and packed airport. Um, and we were having a very nice conversation, just, you know, as nice as we are right now, actually. And when my mom came out and just, like, called my name, and when they saw that she was wearing a mask, they immediately turned their back, like, towards me and just walk away as fast as they could. Not even, okay, bye, you know, just go. And what made it... Um, kind of insulting is that they ran away from us but they started standing next to this gentleman who was coughing and sneezing and not having a mask and he didn't even have a tissue now that I thought about it you know he was like wiping his nose with it but they were literally standing right next to him. According to a Pew Research study 58% of Asian adults say it is more common for people to express racist or racially insensitive views about people who are Asian now than it was prior to the coronavirus outbreak. And 31% of Asian adults in the United States say that since the pandemic began, they've been the subject of racial slurs or jokes. It's not only in the United States that people are being targeted. John Wang, founder of Mastery Academy, is ethnically Taiwanese and was born and raised in Canada. I've experienced, you know, firsthand racism here in Vancouver, literally on my block. I've had people say, you know, yell things like, go back to your country. You know, I think a few few weeks ago, I had somebody say that on the street. I was doing nothing. I was just walking down the street and uh, a person a man who was there passed by, and as soon as I was, you know, my, my back was turned to him, I, I hear the words, go back to your country, and I, and I turned around, and he was looking at me, and then he just turned around and walked away. In that moment, I was like, what? This is my country. <laughs> this, like, I'm Canadian. <laughs> this is my country. This is more of my country than Taiwan ever is right now, and, uh, you know, because I grew up here. So I, I know racism does exist everywhere. <sighs> But I, I look at the guy and I think, you know, 
that is also the outcome of his education, right? That is also the outcome of his pain. You know, there's a, there's a saying, hurt people hurt people, right? People who have experienced judgment and prejudice or, or, or feelings of hurt tend to, ex, you know, externalize that more. I think the more we create division, the more we experience fear and victimization. And what I mean by victimization is, you know, people actually do get hurt. People do get hurt. People like the 89-year-old woman who was set on fire, the 16-year-old boy whose injuries were severe enough to send him to the emergency room, and the two- and six-year-old children who were stabbed at a Sam's Club. Since the outbreak of the coronavirus pandemic, Asians across the world have been treated as if they are to blame for a global health crisis. The hashtag, and please excuse my pronunciation, je ne sais pas un virus, which originated in France, has led to equivalent hashtags in a host of other languages as people take to social media to express solidarity and share their stories of violence and victimization. Don Wyatt, East Asian Studies Director at Middlebury College, summed up the current situation. Whereas many of us are contracting or have the coronavirus, um, they've been vilified in such a way that they are the coronavirus. At the same time, the intensification of anti-Asian aggression has been occurring in the midst of the growing recognition that Black lives have been disproportionately at risk for centuries. Here's Dave Q again. I was starting to put together a project about reporting on specifically anti-Asian violence. Um, but as, as soon as the, the uprisings, the protests, the incredible protests uh, against the killing of, uh, protesting the killing of George Floyd by, at the hands of police, you know, that project just to focus on the violence that, that Asian Americans have suffered under the um, coronavirus, that seemed, for me, outdated. Um, so I've been doing a lot of thinking and learning, and I feel like all of this I'm talking about now has been um, information I've learned uh, over the past month or two um, at the, you know, by joining different calls, by joining calls with the Movement for Black Lives leaders, by joining, reading different books, um, trying to do the work and show up and change my own understanding of how Asian and Black communities uh, are actually joined uh, instead of, you know, kind of separate dialogues that are happening alongside each other. Dave and I conducted our interview via phone during the height of the pandemic. These days, he's working from home, his infant daughter by his side. Throughout his clips, you might hear her in the background or detect changes in Dave's tone. I hope I'm not out of breath the whole time because I'm chasing this baby. She just started crawling, so I'm chasing her and I'm moving her upstairs. And I feel like I was running out of breath on a couple of those points. For Dave, the awareness of the interconnectedness of the struggle faced by various communities of color is something that has crystallized more recently. For Cinder Kuss, a former social justice organizer who will forever be committed to the fight against racism, the awareness of that interconnectedness has always been part of their understanding of the world. Also, as an Asian person, like, I, I really want a world where uh, anti-Black, anti-Indigenous racism doesn't exist because I, I just believe that will be a better world for me as well. Likewise, Dr. Keating sees the interconnectedness of the struggles between communities of color. Bottom line is whoever discriminates against African-Americans 
they also are discriminating against other racial groups. They just might not show it overtly as much as they discriminating against the blacks. But you know, I I have seen enough, you know, racism against me who supposedly an educated and privileged, you know, Asian woman um, that. I have no doubt that if I were of a different color, it probably would be worse for me. Experiencing the devastating impact of discrimination while also having skin privilege is something that many Asian and Asian passing individuals have experienced. Paul Reese, graduate of Yale Divinity School, whose voice you heard in an earlier episode, spoke to me about their experiences of being discriminated against. For me, the hard thing about managing the experience of being Asian passing in a time of um, which feels like this sort of like parenthetical moment in a time where um, the souls of black folks have been so incredibly oppressed and silenced um, crushed for so damn long is that um, part of it forces this really difficult conversation about privilege. Paul went on to share something they had written on their Facebook page after a disturbing run-in with a police officer. On May 31st, I wrote, um, I'm lucky that I'm the type of person of color that society deems nothing a no one of no consequence. That's my privilege, a care, that a careless act like this, I had almost, I had almost been um, involved in a collision um, with a police officer uh, who was, um, who was um, not paying attention to me um, uh, in, in an incident that I felt was, was unnecessarily um, recu- reckless. Uh, perpetrated by an officer of the law is much less likely to get me killed than other non-white ethnicities. The next uh, sentence says in all caps, but that's not a privilege. Um, Then we resume in in standard type. That's still a white person making choices grounded in ethnicity-based bias that put black and brown people's lives at risk in a word, racism. Um, I do do still recognize what I would call... um, subjective privilege privilege and well and all privilege is subjective but um that the privilege that while that there are certain situations where my life is less at risk than than other folks of color particularly black and black passing folks um dealing with that as an element of privilege compared to my uh, my black and black passing siblings is really hard because like the lizard brain immediately thinks, well, what about Asian lives? Like where, where is the concern for those of us who are also struggling? Like sometimes, sometimes there have been times where that's felt like an ellipsis. That has at times been my subjective truth, my personal truth, but that is not what I would consider to be objective truth. What is the objective truth? The thing is, we have to set the record straight, is that, first of all, if the African-American has not built America up through slavery, America would not be at the place that every other, peop- every other group wants to come in. We would not be a prosperous country. 
through the work of the enslaved African Americans, America became successful. You know, it became a prosperous place that is desirable for every other place, every other ethnicity to come uh, and want to come. So that's the one thing. And all the struggle that that the black communities went through to break the barriers, you know, the, the groups that arrive later reap the rewards of that. This is where there's the hashtag for Asians for Black Lives because we are speaking up as well and we're saying that we're standing together with the African-American um, fellow human beings. Paul spoke about how communities of color suffer and struggle due to white supremacy. We are talking about pain that has been produced by the same system of racial injustice that look that looks different and f that looks different and may feel different or the same um, across different non-white passing folks, but is still part of the same fight. Prior to its current intensification, the systemic injustice that Asians in America have been experiencing may have been easier to ignore or dismiss. Here is Jonathan Quinard, marketing manager at Cadence Events, speaking about how the current circumstances have been increasing people's awareness of the brokenness and brutality of the system. I think the collective pause that happened through COVID is waking people up to what is their current reality. And then, you know, the George Floyd came, George Floyd video came out and that, I think because people weren't running around and had to look at it, there was sort of this moment where like, well, I'm not, a, you know, there's nothing else for me to do right now. I'm on my couch and wait a minute, that's not okay. <laughs> I want to do something about it. I think it's this collective wake up saying, you know, real chance because like, who knows how, you know, how long this can, this can last, right? So I think it is a collective um, wake up in in consciousness in the world where they're like, oh, <laughs> a human died, and wait a minute, he's not the only one, and oh, this has been happening forever. Um, so. I think people have a chance, including you know myself, have a chance to wake up to what has been, acknowledge what is, and then move forward in a way that is, um, you know, healthy and fun for everyone as a collective. Well, when you say including yourself to wake up, like, where do you see yourself in this, move, yeah. like, in, in this landscape? Like, how do you fit within it? Mm -hmm. I see myself as, you know, I'm, I've started opening my eyes, and I've realized that other people have been waiting for me to open my eyes. So at first, it's like, a very humbling moment saying, oh, okay, um, you know, I used to think 
personal development was just about one thing and like personal success. And I realized that if I wanted to go fast in life, I get to do personal development the way I knew it. And now I want to go far in life. And for me to go far, the collective well-being is what it's all about. We could be the healing When you're feeling all alone We could be the reason To find the strength to carry on In a world so divided We shall overcome We can be the healing We can be the flower in the gun We can be the healing We can be the flower in the gun Jonathan is half Asian, half white. He moved to the United States when he was 16. Before that? And I grew up in Switzerland, which was really, really white. Jonathan told me that even though he has been the subject of stereotyping, he'd never been attuned to the racism that's been perpetrated against him because it hadn't fit into his understanding of how racism was supposed to present itself. One thing that has actually come up for me like last week or a couple of weeks ago is realizing that um, the bias that I've experienced is that people think I'm Asian, so I'm, I'm smart and I gotta be smart. And so I've bought into that and also created a lot of pressure for myself to be quote unquote unsuccessful. So academically, uh, aesthetically, and, and now, um, in, in my career, it's like it's like not being successful felt like a, being a failure, um, and so that's like kind of like the other end of the spectrum where I, I it's like I have to be successful because my family's successful, you know, um, which is. I realize it's very different. It feels better to have people make positive assumptions about you based on race than negative assumptions. But racism in a pretty package is still racism. It still supports the false premise that human beings are inherently different based on their ethnic origins. The quote we opened with at the beginning of the episode is worth repeating. This is Ancho Ng, head of the Asian Studies Department at Penn State. He was born and raised in Hong Kong and moved to the United States to obtain his PhD at the University of Hawaii. The besetting sin or evil of racism is precisely that. The refusal to acknowledge that all humanity is equal, is the same to begin with. You construct this idea that certain other peoples are fundamentally inferior or at least very, very different. Army Grace Campo was born and raised in the United States. Her parents emigrated from the Philippines. Here, you can hear a moment of discussion between Army and her wife, Chell. Didn't yeah. you mention something about like the Asian culture in America? Like, I don't know if you want to talk about that. Asian culture in America. Like, like, like the stereotypes? Yeah. Like, oh, like Asians are quiet. Like Asians like are submissive and... I'm not that at all. <laughs> not at all. It's almost impossible to grow up in the United States without hearing stereotypes about other races and cultures. 
stereotypes that are based on projected biases. In my interviews with Asian and Asian-passing individuals, the things people told me other people said about them were the same broad generalizations that support the quote-unquote model minority myth that holds that Asians are an example of a minority group to which other racial minorities should aspire. If you're thinking, what's the problem? Aren't positive stereotypes good? The answer is no. Any conflation that collapses a collection of individuals into a single homogenous entity strips people of their multidimensionality. And it's not a fair slide from positive stereotyping to negative stereotyping, discrimination, and aggression. In the U.S., we have a long and shameful history of anti-Asian abuses. The first racially discriminatory um, immigration policies in American history, you know, the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 was directed toward Chinese. The Chinese Exclusion Act, a United States federal law signed by President Chester Arthur on May 6, 1882, prohibited all immigration of Chinese laborers to the United States. It was the first law in American history that prevented all members of a specific ethnic or national group from emigrating to this country. On February 19, 1942, shortly after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066, which militarized the United States government against its own citizens and enabled the internment of approximately 120,000 Japanese Americans. Not only was the internment of Japanese Americans horrific, it was also hypocritical. At the same time that the United States was overseas actively fighting a war against white supremacy, it was rounding people up and locking them in detention camps based solely on their Japanese ancestral heritage. Juan Rosa, Northeast Director of Civic Engagement for Naleo Educational Fund, reminded me. Ted and their teams came out of the, uh, the horrific acts that, you know, a nation committed World War II, where we in turn put Japanese Americans in internment camps using census data, right? The Department of Defense used census data to locate uh, pockets of Japanese Americans and went and rounded them up. In 1982, on the night of his bachelor party, a 27-year-old Chinese American named Vincent Chin was bludgeoned to death by two disgruntled white auto workers. The auto workers and many other Americans at that time blamed the success of the Japanese auto industry for the economic downturn in the American economy. You might think that the acts of two racist individuals so fueled by hate and ignorance that they would beat a Chinese American person to death over their animosity toward Japan should be branded individual acts as opposed to being included amidst the systemic abuses perpetrated against Asians in America. Not so, because Vincent Chin's killers, Ronald Evans and Michael Nitz, were enabled by the system. Their only penalty for murdering another human being was being fined $3,000 and serving three years probation. The men served no jail time. During the 2003 SARS outbreak and in the years immediately afterward, many American cities saw a rise of anti-Asian racism so much so that the Chinese and Filipina nurses 
publicly celebrated for their work in healthcare, found themselves fearing for their lives on their way home from their hospital shifts. And now, here we are in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic, with people being openly assaulted for no other provocation than their Asian ancestry. Cinder Kuss spoke about their experiences throughout childhood of being actively othered. Being the only Asian kid in like all white settings is uh, not great experience for me. I think what was most difficult for me was I was always teased about my appearance, about like my eyes and, and then about being mixed race too. And yeah, I remember we moved to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and we lived in this like pretty rundown working class neighborhood with a lot of like really shitty, trashy white people. And I got beat up frequently by like high school kids. Uh, and I was like a small 10 year old boy. And I got like jumped by like this group of high school kids who I don't know, several times over the course of years. And then, but then the most outrageous thing. And then actually when all this shit was, uh, you know, fuck the police popped off. Uh, it, I was, I re- remembered this. Um, there is this. There's one time this uh this like new kid was in town or whatever, I was ten, whatever. There's there's new kid, he was like playing playground, he was white, but you know, whatever, I was a kid. So I was like, Oh hey, blah blah, let's play. And then his mom saw us and ran out screaming at me and she like full grown woman to ten year old I mean, you know, I'm like a small person. I was like small when I was ten. Uh, um, like picked me up and threw me to the ground and like, like, yeah. And then like, you know, towered over me and was like, um, I forget what she exactly said, but she called me a half breed. And that was the first time I ever heard that word. And she was like, you know, if I ever catch you near my son again, I'll kill you. Um, and then, you know, I was very scared and upset. I went home and like crying my dad and then he called the police and the police came and you know I was out there and I told the police what happened the woman was there and they nothing happened they're like well you know it's okay everything's fine you know you're back I didn't do anything to her Elizabeth Hasegawa Agresta ethnically Japanese born and raised in Canada hasn't been the victim of physical violence but that doesn't mean she hasn't been harmed as a result of other people's discrimination. I interviewed her and her husband, Thomas. Elizabeth, specifically, do you feel like you've ever encountered any sort of racial discrimination or not really? Um, yeah, a lot. Well, no, not, not as much as other people. In some ways, it's good because I think Asians have a good stereotype, usually behavior-wise, studious, clean, that kind of thing. But on the other hand, um, it's it's just people doing their usual thing of making an assumption based on the way you look. Even Asians will come up to me and ask me what I am. What are you? And I've gotten a lot of that. And it's interesting sometimes people hear my last name which is Italian, 
And I've had a doctor talk to me on the phone and make a racial slur against the Asians coming out again. <laughs> he didn't realize who <laughs> he was talking to. Yes. Oh, my God. Um, yeah, I was a little in shock over that. But here? When you're laughing yeah. about it, but what did you do? Like, in that moment, what, what, what happened? I didn't correct him. I was placing a call on behalf of the patient. And I was talking to him, and he could hear my accent being from Canada. Oh. And so he asked where I was from, and I said I was from the Vancouver area. And he said, oh, it's all full of those. Well, I won't say it. Elizabeth mentioned the seemingly good stereotype, something that comes along with the myth of the model minority. Here's Dr. Keating speaking about the ways in which the model minority myth is divisive. Recently, there was an, an article and while we're on the topic of how, you know, certain like, like Asian might be racist against black, you know, or because historically we came to Asian people came into the United States much later, right? And somehow became, quote unquote, the model minority. Mm-hmm. And clearly, you know, people work hard. It's not like they they would come and they they become successful, you know. So, but because they became more successful as in, you know, having more people, you know, more of the population being educated or, you know, become financially successful, um, then they think that, the other races were not working hard enough. Mm-hmm. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, totally. Do you know, so if I'm like a kid who does homework all the time and get 100%, then I'm like, well, you didn't have it. You you didn't get this scholarship because you didn't work as hard as I do. Right. So you have not, nothing else to blame, you know, but yourself. Right. But I think the, the um, it's, we, you know, and that article says there's more, to that, you know, that is not like we've mistakenly as a as a as this ethnic group thought that. You know what I mean? Right. And there so are people right. Well I don't think that but as a group and I've heard comments from other Asian people that I just shake my head and walk away. Don Wyatt again. I think For Asian Americans as a group, I speak about them as a group with some trepidation because there is as much variation or more than you might ever imagine uh, within these groups, within it as a group. But um, I think particularly for the Chinese, which I know best, uh, the root of the dilemma for them is model minority trap that they've been caught in, um, the, the, the kind of tension between being really unalterably foreign and yet the enticement of believing that they can ally themselves with, with white people in a country that, you know, is founded on ideals of white supremacy. So I think they've been caught in a kind of trap, 
And I think what has begun to happen, particularly with the upsurge of protests against police brutality and and so forth, is that a lot of Asian Americans are um, waking up. And I think they are becoming aware that this model minority trap is indeed a trap. And, you know, the idea that they might as well consider themselves never likely to be fully accepted by by white America. And therefore, I think there's an increasing tendency to ally themselves with the people under siege. Um, so there is a chance for uh, a kind of solidarity, particularly with Black Americans. As a Black American whose love for Asian history, literature, and culture compelled him to pursue a PhD in Asian studies at Harvard University, Don has always felt a simultaneous affinity for Black and Asian diasporic cultures. I think if we look at your life as a model in some ways in your academic history, like what I love about that is that it, it you had an intense appreciation for a culture other than your own without ever necessarily looking to like fit yourself into that culture, but rather to borrow elements of it and to learn from it and to grow in relationship with it. And yeah, yeah. I, I, I never commenced a study of China with the aim of becoming Chinese. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I wanted to extract and appreciate and uh, gain a command of the wealth of experiences of a culture that I thought had something to offer to me. Here's a short message from our episode sponsors, without whose support the Demystifying Diversity podcast wouldn't be possible. I want to tell you about an emotional intelligence program called Next Level Trainings. In 2019, I personally went through Next Level Trainings, and in all sincerity, the Demystifying Diversity podcast would not exist if I hadn't. The leadership trainings opened my eyes to some blind spots I had in my life. They increased my capacity to give and receive love, to forgive myself and others, and to contribute more to this world. They really helped me, both personally and professionally. Next Level Trainings uses experiential exercises that are designed to help you to see yourself as you are, shift your perspective, and start forming sustainable habits that will transform your life and, by extension, your community and the world. In a supportive environment, you'll come to see yourself and others through a more open, powerful, and freeing lens. I can say from my own firsthand experience that the trainings increased my capacity for love, connection, and vulnerability. They were life-changing, and I can't recommend Next Level Trainings enough. And Next Level Trainings is offering Demystifying Diversity podcast listeners $50 off on Shift, their introductory virtual training. To add even more value to their offer, if you register for and attend the Shift online training now, you'll receive a free voucher to their in-person discovery training valued at $495. The voucher can be used when pandemic gathering restrictions lift. 
So go to nextleveltrainings.com slash diversity. That's nextleveltrainings with an S slash diversity and enter the promo code diversity. You'll be glad you did. Speaking of savings, for most of us, when it comes to money, we have no clear direction. We know what we want financially, but we get confused as to how to get there. John and Patty Lavin, the owners of Lavin and Associates, a branch of Primerica, are committed to offering all people the opportunity to achieve financial freedom. Lavin and Associates offers a complimentary cutting-edge financial needs analysis that works sort of like a GPS, or I guess you can think of it as a money map. By giving you a clear route from where you are to where you want to go, this analysis empowers you to become properly protected, debt-free, and financially independent, so you can worry less about money and enjoy your life more. I had a financial planning session with John a couple of years ago, and I went from $0 in the bank to more than $10,000, plus a retirement account. To set up a time to speak with John, a financial advisor for 40 years, and receive your free financial needs analysis, call him at 610-453-2331. Or email him at johnlavin at me.com. That's J-O-N-L-A-V-I-N at me.com. And let him know the Demystifying Diversity podcast sent you. Here, Don speaks about how he first became interested in Asian studies. I uh, was a uh, philosophy major uh, as an undergraduate and uh, essentially was exposed to Western philosophy and then uh, perchance encountered some thinkers uh, from another tradition on the other side of the world, largely in translation, and was much impressed. Uh, This helped to flesh out my understanding of the discipline. And I uh, decided at a certain point that there's no real reason with my being a reasonably intelligent person that I should continually be at the mercy of these translations. So I began to uh, approach Chinese language and had studied other languages previously, notably French and also Russian, but was never as adept with those as I became with um, with. Chinese language, beginning with the study of Mandarin. You understand what people are saying. Uh, It has a way of uh, reducing barriers. You begin to understand how they think. For Ancho, being multilingual acted as a cultural bridge as well. He recalled moving from Hong Kong to Hawaii. English was not a problem for me, so what was the problem? So I mean, sure, uh, culturally, you, you have to get adjusted to whatever the local culture is. But on the other hand, uh, the main tool is your language. And it, to begin with, you, you don't have a language barrier. Uh, it, it's not a problem. So, so, in fact, you know, when I first went to the university, the first day, the professor, I, I think the, the, the director of graduate studies, said, ah, you have no problem. You have no language problem. No, in fact, 
when I when I um, took the cab, the dorm where I was to stay, the 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 cab driver said, "Oh, you can pass over as a local kid, no problem." In theory, being able to speak to one another can collapse the illusion of differences, but in practice, it doesn't always work out that way. Really, it comes down to essentially one key thing, which is, what do you do first? You focus on speaking first or, or, or listening first? For I think one universal principle is we want to be heard and we want to be seen, right? Universally, that's how we, we, we are. And so much, so much of our conflicts really stem from that one thing of like, we want to be heard first rather than we want to hear first. But oftentimes when we, when we accept and we hear the other person and we see their humanity, it's a, it makes it easier for us to then connect, right? Then we're not talking at people, we're talking with people, we're connecting with each other. And I think that's such a big power, it's such an important thing of it. I think that so much conflict, if we all just took on the perspective of like, well, let me sit here for a moment and check in with you and then check in with me and then speak, we, we would have, we will have world peace, I think. <laughs> I'm not saying war will all go away or conflict doesn't exist. I think conflict serves a purpose. Um, but there's so much of it that's just wasted on misunderstandings and, and not seeing each other. Cinder Kuss knows all too well what it feels like not to be seen and understood. Over and over again, they have experienced other people projecting their own biases onto them. I feel like... Looking back on my life, if people saw me as half white and that meant anything, my life would be very different. I recognize that I have like light skin privilege and my dad is white and I was like raised in white culture, but like one drop rule applies to Asian people and applies today. And, you know, like white people will say I'm white. When white people want to oppress me, they'll say I'm Asian. When white people want to rebuff my attempts to shame them, they'll say I'm white. And that's just how I know I'm Asian and I'm not white. Cinder spoke about their personal struggle against white supremacy. Their experience is a microcosm of a macrocosm. This same systemic supremacy impacts so many racial and ethnic minorities. The foe that we're all facing is white supremacy. Um, and if we don't come together as communities of color, then we don't have a chance against white supremacy. And because of how deep and how uh, wide ranging and how um, integrally embedded it is in our, in our system. Um, so yes, yes, these um, struggles seem like they're disparate, but actually if you look closely, you'll see that a lot of the um, progress that Asian American communities have been able to make come after a major moment in civil rights organizing. Um, the repeal of the Chinese Exclusion Act comes very closely after the civil rights um, actions of the 1960s. So, yes, they look disparate, but I think it's important for us to remind ourselves that this is the same struggle, and liberation for one of us means liberation for all of us, and therefore um, we can't be working separately. The virus of hate doesn't stop at one community. The virus of hate will kind of travel to every community of color. Um, so that is why, that's why it is important for us to kind of bound together. Coronavirus has both intensified and illuminated the disparities that afflict communities of color. According to a 2020 report from the J.P. Morgan Chase Institute, Black-owned businesses were the most severely impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic, 
and Asian-owned businesses weren't far behind. In April, Asian business owners reported that their cash balances were down 22% and their revenue had been reduced by more than 60%. According to one study, approximately half of the Chinese restaurants in the United States have closed because of the COVID-19 pandemic, at least in part due to consumer prejudice. Asian individuals have been negatively impacted by the pandemic in a host of ways. At the beginning of not July, but June, I was starting to kind of put together a reporting project because um, I have a background as a writer as well. And I wanted to shed a little more light about how the how the COVID closures were affecting Asian owned businesses, uh, because especially in Chinatown, uh, we were I remember putting together a Lunar New Year event and starting to hear whispers of you know, I'm not sure that community wants to celebrate because back in February, February 6th or 9th, earlier in February was when Lunar New Year was happening, but that was when the virus was going through Wuhan, China. Um, so a lot of, while we weren't aware of the virus, uh, a lot of Chinese families were um, communicating with their families back home and worrying about the spread of this virus. Um, so actually, the, the a lot of Lunar New Year events were canceled. So the hit to businesses for Chinese, uh, at least specifically Chinese-owned businesses, starts in February. They've been experiencing downturns in February. Um, and then there were uh, the the rhetoric by the president has also allowed, um, you know, specifically activism to combat the racism against Chinatown. People worried that um, going out to Chinatown restaurants would uh, put, put them at greater risk of uh, coronavirus. We definitely, in our in Philadelphia's Chinatown, felt the effect for that with decreased business, um, uh, instances of anti-Asian violence uh, that we had to contend with. And yeah, the, those closures and those business effects have been um, affecting us for uh, a little longer. The lack of care exhibited toward Asian communities is an extension of the racism being perpetrated both on an individual and a government level. Here's Dave speaking about what happened within the city of Philadelphia. As the city has rolled out its services early on, it was, there was this kind of this arms race of um, the help that was going out, and the city was only releasing information in English. So we were frantically trying to translate and then get, give information out about the programs that were available. It's clear that even when there has been support offered, there are times when that support further perpetuates discrimination and exclusion. I've already recounted Donald Trump's openly discriminatory remarks and pejorative comments. Now I'll read a seemingly supportive March 23, 2020 tweet from the 45th president. He writes, It is very important that we totally protect our Asian American community in the United States and all around the world. They are amazing people, and the spreading of the virus is, all caps, not their fault in any way, shape, or form. They are working closely with us to get rid of it. And then, all caps again, we will prevail together. This message is a reinforcement of the model minority myth and the white supremacist system. To say our Asian American community is language that bespeaks ownership. To say they are amazing people reduces an entire group of individuals to a monolith. Newsflash, not all Asians are amazing people. Neither are all white, all blacks, or any other racial group. People are people. 
Some are good, others are not. Most are in between. Furthermore, to say that they are working with us conveys a message of us and them, subject and object. Not only is this sort of support not helpful, it's hurtful. Here's Don Wyatt speaking about the current administration's treatment of the American Asian population and the widespread social reversion back to what should be antiquated ideologies of bigotry and xenophobia. It's been very disappointing to see our knowledge of the world at large uh, beyond ourselves as Americans kind of degrade, and it's, uh, it's an unfortunate occurrence. Clearly, by virtue of what I study, I'm, I'm necessarily an internationalist, and it's been very disappointing to see um, the sort of uh, isolationist and sort of hegemonic mindset that has sort of been creeping across the landscape. I asked Don what it means to be an internationalist. Well, it means... I think first and foremost, uh, the, the sort of belief that uh, no particular culture has all the answers and that there is always some way in which we can profit from exchange and uh, dialogue with cultures other than our own. There are more than 22 million Asian individuals in America a number that represents 6% of the population. Within this 22 million, there are so many different intersecting and overlapping and disparate cultures, ethnicities, religions, perspectives, genders, and languages. So it seems to me that when you're talking about studying diversity, you, you can approach it vert vertically and horizontally. Vertically, you talk about a particular people, particular culture, particular community, and you go backwards and then forwards to see the internal evolution and changes and how different things have been born, how different things have come into being out of the same root. Horizontal is essentially to go outside a particular cultural community, a particular society, and cast a wide, essentially, blanket, and try to understand how different peoples and societies and cultures have looked at essentially the same thing. One thing different people seem to be looking at differently is the COVID-19 crisis. The way I look at it is, if a virus could first arise in one part of the world and within a matter of months spread to every pocket of humanity, that's evidence that separation is an illusion. We're all interconnected. On the other hand, there are many who have used the coronavirus to substantiate their own pre-existing biases. But to what end? I look at the people who are going through all that anger and all that hate and all that energy being wasted. And a lot of times I just kind of go, if they, if they realize what the source of that, where that pain comes from, that prejudice, where that, where that stems from, if they put that energy towards healing that, they could, you know, like they wouldn't have to feel that anger and, and, and hate and fear because those are very exhausting emotions. 
my God, can you imagine going through your day? <laughs> Just being angry all the time? At people you don't even know, like when, when I, I just look at some people who are so, you know, who have, let's say like prejudice or racial prejudice or racism. And I'm like, really? Like how much energy are you wasting? The psychological effect of feeling superior is actually a double-edged sword. A lot of people don't realize this. In a 2018 report, the Association of American Medical Colleges determined that 17% of doctors practicing in the United States are of Asian descent. According to the Silicon Valley Leadership Group, one in six of the network's science, technology, engineering, and math employees is from China, Hong Kong, or Taiwan. Even as many of these healthcare workers are being discriminated against, they are treating sick patients striving to discover a cure, and involved in efforts to create a potentially life-saving vaccine. There are so many incredible innovations and inventions that individuals of Asian descent have contributed to the functioning of American society, and so many wonderful contributions to come out of Asian countries. I guess, in the Chinese case, there's this important historian of science, uh, Joseph Needham, who determined uh, that essentially of the many inventions that the Chinese have, have given the world, there, there are so-called four great ones, and those are paper, printing, uh, gunpowder, and uh, the compass. And um, without, if you can imagine a world for an instant without any of these, uh, well, I invite you to try. Hi, this is Anna Marie. Daryl and I thank you for tuning in to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. We'd love to hear your voices on topics of diversity. So join in on the conversation by calling 844-888-8148 and leave us a message or drop us a note through the website, www.demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com, and we'll do our best to answer your question during our Q&A episodes. In the midst of my conversation with Don Wyatt, he said something I found worthy of exploration. There's also uh, one of the interesting uh, things about China, I think, too, culturally, is simply the fact that cultural definition has never been principally ethnic. It's been the degree to which you can appropriate Chinese cultural values. And therefore, the Chinese are very accepting in a way of people who are ethnically different, but have gone the distance to appropriate their outlook, their value system, their, their cultural attributes. How do you assess that? I asked him. Well, it, it almost returns us to where I began, uh, for instance, the uh, appropriation of language. The, the Chinese are interesting in that regard, as proud as they are of their linguistic tradition in comparison to some place like France, I guess, in Europe, where there's a kind of condescension. <laughs> For those outside the culture who are trying to speak the language, right? 
Yeah. Uh, the Chinese are always uh, very encouraging, very complimentary, and very impressed by someone who's trying to acquire their language. Because Don's point of entry into an appreciation of Chinese history and culture was sparked by his love of language, I wanted to know if he had a favorite word or phrase. Fang Lung, Ru Hai, release the dragon into the sea, which is? is the Chinese way of saying um, give a person a chance to show what he or she can do. Wow. Can you say that one more time? <laughs> yeah. Fang uh, Lung, Ru Hai. I love that. Give a person a chance to see what they can do. Well, to show, yeah. To show, to show what they can do. That's really, that's pretty exquisite. And I think that does really bring us to that space of creating space to be inviting and encouraging to other cultures and other people and like see where that leads and let the person either surprise us or disappoint us, but not superimpose. Mm -hmm our own values onto them or our own prejudgment. Mm-hmm. And implicit in this saying, too, is not to uh, judge a person um, by, you know, just initial impressions. Everybody has potential until they don't. So how do we discover the potential in others? Perhaps by adopting the perspective of an internationalist. There's so much beauty and so much amazing things in the world. And, uh, and I feel like, you know, if we, if we don't take action to challenge ourselves, we, we, ne- we can never change. Uh, and we're missing the, the point of this. Ultimately, the world is a very rich place. There are divergent, diversified, diverse ways of approaching a common humanity. Thank you for listening to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe. And if you'd like to join in the conversation, visit demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com or call 844-888-8148 and leave us a message. Many thanks to interviewees Ancho Ng, Dave Q, Dr. Han Bui Keating, John Wang, Don Wyatt, Cinder Kuss, Paul Reese, Jonathan Quinard, Army Grace Campo, Michelle Chell, Campo Velez, Juan Rosa, Elizabeth Hasegawa Agresta, Thomas Agresta, Nikki and Ben, and to our episode sponsors, Next Level Trainings and Lavin and Associates. Each episode of the Demystifying Diversity podcast is written, reported, and produced by me, Dara Lise Lyons, with the invaluable assistance of Anna Marie Jones, reporter, producer, and co-collaborator, Paul Kondo, assistant producer and editor, Raina Epstein, creative assistant, Sunny Taylor, content editor and creative collaborator, Zach James, marketing manager, and Monica Lynn, graphic designer. The music you heard is The Flower by Michael Franti and Spearhead featuring Victoria Canal. If you'd like to explore these topics outside of the podcast, pick up a copy of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity, wherever books are sold. Join us next week. And in the meantime, 
Let's practice empathy and work together to create a more inclusive world.